0: Hello, and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Carolina Gajek. Carolina is a documentary and descriptive linguist working mostly on the Quechuan languages and natural language use. Her main topics of research are evidentiality, encoding how we know things, and epistemic modality, encoding different aspects of knowledge. She is particularly interested in how these categories play out in natural discourse She also researches pragmatics in general and language endangerment and methodology of linguistic fieldwork, with special reference to the indigenous languages of South America. Carolina is also interested in the socioeconomic issues which affect minority and endangered languages and the communities which use them.
1: Okay, so the first thing I'd like to ask you is, how did you become a linguist? How did you first become interested in linguistics?
2: Well, I was always interested in languages, sort of like in learning them. But I didn't really realize this is a a thing you can do until I was already at uni studying something else. I was doing political science. And then I went to Barcelona. I think it was over the holidays, and I stumbled across this exhibition on endangered languages. And then I was totally hooked. I was like, "What is this? Where can I learn more about more about this?" And uh, and then I realized that there was an MA at SOAS doing exactly that. I think it's the same one that you've done.
1: Language documentation, yes.
2: And so basically, when I finished my political studies uh, degree, I went straight to SOAS to do that. And then it was like a whole year of talking about how to do fieldwork, but without any actual fieldwork. So I kind of felt, OK, now I have to do a PhD to, to, you know, to do fieldwork and really find out what this is about.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think we overlapped a little bit. So I was right. What years were you there?
2: I did DMA um, starting in 2010 and then my phd took quite a while so i finished that in 2017 but i wasn't really kind of on site in london for that whole time when when did you start at soas?
1: i started the ma in 2015 so i was there at the tail end then of your of your phd i think i think i attended a talk that you did or or something like that i feel like we were we were like in the same sphere but we didn't know each other
2: I think we met like a couple of times, but in the room full of people, we haven't actually spoken until now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: that's so funny. Well, I'm glad we can talk now. That's so funny. Um, okay, so I'd love to hear more about your fieldwork biography. So where have you done fieldwork? With who? What has that been like?
2: All my fieldwork so far has been in Ecuador, uh, so South America. I've been working on Quechuan languages uh, kind of properly since 2013, but my first field trip was... Uh, Christmas 2011. So I submitted a failed ELDP application right after my MA to start doing fieldwork. But uh, then the criticism was I didn't really have contact with the community. Um, so Mandana from ELDP put me in touch with Connie Dickinson, a linguist who's by then been in Ecuador for about 20 odd years, and she's still there actually working. So Connie took me in so that I could establish contacts with the community. And it was actually quite funny because of this, um, a failed application that I put in which was about kind of sociolinguistics and stuff I, I was because I was new to linguistics and I didn't feel like I could do language documentation proper let's say and she said oh yeah this is about a language on the border of Colombia and Ecuador this was for completely different reasons and she thought yeah you want to work on agglutinative languages so apparently so I mean I haven't actually talked about her with this so i uh, talked with her about this so I don't know but that's what I've heard later on she's like yeah you have to work on Quechua there is this uh, Quechua language here uh, that still needs documenting and she set me up with the community so I went there 2011 then I got the grant to to go there for an ELDP funded fieldwork. work um, spent uh, about a year uh, in the village in the Napo province in Ecuador between 2013 when my first field trip was and then 2014 again and then I kept coming back for smaller field trips, either to give back the results of the work, like we produced a DVD about medicinal plants and, you know, all the data, the corpus and stuff, and to collect some more data as well in 2017 or 18, or actually both these years. And then most recently, I've had an ELDP-funded postdoc, uh, where I worked more on Upper which is this first language that I did my PhD on in the Amazon. But I also started working on another Quechuan variety uh, called uh, Chibuleo Quechua, which is actually in the mountains near, near Ambato in the Tunguragua province. So those are two languages from the same language family. I think mutually intelligible to an extent, but the speakers are culturally very different. So it's it's an interesting experience to kind of branch out of uh, out of the Amazon where the climate and everything is different and now be working also in the Andes at like 3000 4000 meters of altitude it's not very far but in terms of ecosystems and customs and everything it really is quite different so it's very interesting
1: that's really interesting. Geographically, how close together are the communities? So you said it's not that far, but they're they're quite different.
2: Yeah. I mean, Ecuador is relatively small. When I went there last time in um, October last year, I think the whole trip from one field site to the other would take me something like six, seven hours, but it's about 250 kilometers maybe. I I can't give you the exact figure, but it it takes quite a while just because you have to get out of the jungle and go up the mountains and all. And there is not really like a direct route, but uh, it's not very far. And the first community I've been working with, uh, it feels quite remote, but it's also like about 200 kilometers from the capital, Quito. So it's not great distances, but because of the terrain and everything and the ecosystems you go to, it does feel quite far.
1: How do you get from place to place? Like, can you are there roads? Can you just take a van, or do you have to hike? Like, how how do you get to the field site?
2: So the first field site where I uh, did my field work, it's Nuevo Paradiso. It's that's kind of the most remote location that I've been to, but it's also not so remote. So you can get easily from Quito to Tena either by bus or uh, you can hire a private taxi, like if you're going with equipment and things like that. If you'd rather have that in a secure place and that takes about three hours and buses three, four hours. And then from there, it's two hours on a public bus. I've never actually taken a cab. Like, uh, I mean, with other people, maybe I've hitched a ride, but not to like move myself. So then it's further two hours by bus. You could also take a canoe, but then it would take you like uh, six, seven hours. That used to be the only way until, um, I think, mid-90s to get to that part of the province. But there is also oil exploitation going on in the area. So actually, the roads are kind of decent. Getting into the community where, where I was working, it's kind of paved road half the way from Tena, from the provincial capital, and then it's, it's kind of a dirt road. So if it rains a lot, it gets harder. But I never really had any trouble. It would usually take you like two, two and a half hours to get there from Tena.
1: That's not bad.
2: Yeah, it's it's quite convenient. I was able to go to the to town for supplies or, you know, for internet connection when I was doing field work to talk to family and just kind of feel less isolated. So it's not like this, uh, you know, field site story where you have to take a canoe and then hike, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's actually quite accessible.
1: Yeah, I just did an interview with Kate Lindsay and she does have to take a canoe to her field site. So she has like the classic experience where it's like you know a plane and then a smaller plane and then a smaller plane and and then finally you get to your canoe and then you have to do the canoe and then you have to hike oh wow yeah she she's tough
2: right yeah i mean there is places like that in ecuador as well uh, and when i first started fieldwork i was kind of uh, Mm, jealous of the people who had to do that but i have to say that it's very convenient to be able to just kind of jet out on the bus when you feel like uh you know like you absolutely need to talk to your partner or your family (laughs) or or otherwise you're just not going to be be doing so well so that was very convenient kind of for my well-being because when i first went i felt like yeah it's not a problem it's going to be fine but then you find yourself you know doing this work that you're new to in the on the other side of the world and uh, sometimes it is needed to kind of reconnect with with people you know
1: oh definitely yeah that that's something i really struggled with a lot um when when i've been in the field is even though you're around people all the time it, you can feel quite lonely and both times i went without my family or without my partner so you know after like all day speaking a mommy or speaking japanese like you just want to like think in your native language you know and you like haven't had a chance to and like some like somebody has been touching you all day long like some child or like you've been with, around other people all day But, I don't know, it's just, like, a very strange feeling to be lonely, but also, like, surrounded by so many people.
2: And I think we don't really get to talk about that enough. I mean, now for me it's different, right? Because I go there, and it's very, very strange. So I arrive in this remote village, you know, it's like, dead of the night, the dogs are barking, and I'm like... Mm, I'm home again sort of I mean I know it's not my home but it does really feel like that and uh, you know because I've been kind of back and forth so many times it's it's really good to see people and it feels very different but yeah the first field trip especially I think I just really wasn't prepared for for how complex this is going to be i don't want to say tough because it was a a great thing to do and i'm very happy that i got to do it i'm very happy that the people uh, you know my host family and the people in the village put up with me and uh, we were able to establish a really nice relationship and it's also kind of easier getting into new communities i think once you know what you're doing but first you go there you're kind of clueless you don't speak the language Um, and yeah and you kind of expect people are going to be very patient with you, that might not always be the case. You might not always be very patient so so yeah, so I was very happy that I had this kind of possibility to vent at not such a big distance
1: yeah, definitely why um why did you choose Ecuador? Had you already like was it just some place you were interested in? Had you already been there before?
2: So I haven't been to Ecuador, actually, prior to this field trip, like this pre-field trip in 2011, but uh, I've lived in South America, uh, in Argentina for about a year before, and I was interested in the region. I, my, my MA in international relations was on South America, and I spoke Spanish, and I kind of thought it would make sense, you know, since I was new to linguistics, very, really very new when I started applying for grants to do my PhD. Um that it would make my chances of getting funding bigger if I went to a region that I already had some sort of relationship with. I mean, of course, I could have done work in Europe as well, right? But uh, at that point, I was like, yeah, I want to do something uh, far away from home. And this was... uh, seemed like a most feasible option where I had something additional to offer. And as I told you, my first uh, ELDP application was totally failed. It was also a really bad application because I did political science before. I thought, yeah, I'm going to look at like uh, the influence of conflict on uh, language endangerment, which I still think would be a very interesting thing to do, but super complex, which I didn't realize at the time. And so I wanted to go and work... Uh, on the border of Ecuador and Colombia, but in Ecuador because that was kind of immediately out of the conflict zone. And then, as I told you already, when uh, uh, Mandana realized that I could need some, I would need some extra help with getting in touch with people, she put me in touch with Connie. And then she's like, "Oh yeah, you want to work in Ecuador? And on a an agglutinative language? Here is kichwa So that's kind of how it all happened. It's a little bit of a a string of coincidences.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should explain what agglutinative languages are, um, just in case not everyone knows, or maybe they've forgotten since undergrad morphology class.
2: (laughs) Yeah, of course. So basically, I think in lay terms, uh, it's kind of languages which stack a lot of morphemes together into one word, not like... uh, those languages which have one word as a one big sentence, so those are fusional, but those kind of in, in simple terms with really long words with where each morpheme has like a very specific meaning and you just tend to put them together. So Quechua l- language family is kind of typical uh and yeah i mean in peru there is more agglutination i think than in ecuador it's kind of slightly more isolating in ecuador uh but yeah the irony is i never really wanted to work on morphology my interests are semantics and pragmatics but it's just you know it was uh i think connie wasn't aware of the uh of the extent to which you know this was kind of a a weird choice of project on my part and then i found out later that you know that The reason why she recommended Kichwa is because it was agglutinative. But I think a lot of people arrive at their field sites through coincidences of of, of that sort. Oh, yes. When you ask people about that, you always think that they had it crystal clear, you know, from when they started being interested in linguistics. I want to work on this. And then I remembered in my MA, like everybody that we asked uh, as students were like, oh, yeah, it just kind of so happened or, you know, somebody reached out or.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like you just kind of fell in and look at you now <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah well then it turned it turned out that kichwa has a really fascinating system of discourse markers which mark uh, the things that i'm really interested in like evidentiality and epistemicity
1: yeah maybe maybe we can talk about evidentiality now so again like can you explain what these concepts mean and why you are interested in them
2: Right, so um, evidentiality is, uh, at least traditionally understood, is uh, linguistic marking of the source of information. What that means is basically morphemes that code how you know about something. We don't really have um, kind of a straight equivalent in, um, say, familiar, the most familiar or widely known languages, but you could say in English, ad evidential would be something like reportedly. So if you say... I don't know, reportedly, Tom is going to come to the party. That's probably, I mean, it's a different register, right? So, uh, a little bit. So, maybe that's not the best example. But that means that it's not first hand information. You don't know that from Tom. You wouldn't say that if Tom himself told you. Or you could say, I hear Tom is going to come to the party. Uh, So, in English, we have that. But it also kind of transmits that you don't fully trust that information. And in languages with grammatical evidentiality, the source of information is separated from how much you trust it or not. So source of information, evidentiality and how much we trust something that something is uh, true or that it might happen is uh, something called epistemic modality. Uh, But actually uh, the reality is much more complex than that. So... uh, we thought when, when we started studying this you know, seriously in the 1980s that this was a category that really rigidly marked uh, sources of information, like whether you've heard something from somebody else, whether you infer it from evidence. So like you see, I don't know, ashes on the ground and you say, oh, there was a fire here. And you mark it with a specific evidential morpheme or you experience something firsthand and then you mark it differently. Uh, But in most languages, really, and also in in Quechua, what happens is that that kind of gets mixed up with uh, something called epistemic stance. So it's more about how you want to present yourself and and present this information
1: like present your confidence in that information
2: kind of oh yeah if you want to come across as expert so it's not really one-to-one um, about whether you know you've seen something or you've heard it or you've heard it and also as uh, interlocutors we don't care about that as much right so uh, Now when I'm talking to you and saying all these things, you're not going to ask me like, okay, but have you actually gotten on the bus and have you like been on it for two hours so that now you can tell me, uh, you know, that that this is how long the the ride takes. Like it's more important for you to know that I have been there and I have done this fieldwork and you kind of trust me because of that. If you look at evidentiality the way that you know, fieldwork was done before, so you had a set of isolated sentences, and you presented them to speakers for translation, and there were different sources of evidence, so like you see it with your own eyes, or you hear the rain tapping on the roof, or somebody told you it was raining, then you get a neat paradigm. But the moment you start working on natural discourse, which is what I do, then it gets really messy and really fascinating. And then the the epistemicity comes in, so it's a broader concept, uh, which basically means all the different things related to knowledge and language. It's not very specific, but uh, it's also a field in development that a lot of people are working on right now from different angles, and there are different subcategories of it right now. It's it's very messy to work with, uh, but I find it fascinating, really. I I can't tell you why. It's just uh, one of these things you stumble upon, you're like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. What is a general day like for you when you're collecting data? Do you have a routine?
2: So uh, that's uh – A tricky one, mostly because uh, the first project that I've done uh, for my PhD, it was a very different setup to to this postdoc that I also mentioned, which was the most recent thing. So when I was doing PhD fieldwork, I think the common denominator of all my work is that I've always uh, tried to work collaboratively with people. So it wouldn't just be me working, but there was a team of native speakers working with me. So they would show up at my house early in the morning and either we would go um, to an interview that has been set up previously to record and that could have been, you know, all day, depending on how far that was and how we needed to get there. Or um, we were lucky enough that the local school let us use their space. So then we would just sit there and uh, and transcribe or we would do elicitation sessions, which are also needed sometimes, right, for negative data or like... Uh, conversational elicitation with uh, with some stimuli and things. Uh, so it was kind of computer heavy on the days that we didn't have uh, interviews uh, because we did a lot of transcription work and uh, actually it was mostly the native speakers transcribing. So I would do the segmentation sometimes just in the interest of time. Uh, and then once they transcribe something, I would go through things and ask, you know, well, what about this? What about that? So Mm, that took a lot of time uh that was throughout my phd and then for this last project uh because it was scheduled to start in 2019 and then it didn't start until 2020 with covid and everything we did it remotely mostly so uh first I was working with a speaker of uh, Chibuléo uh, Selena, uh, my co-investigator and kind of trying to find out more about the language for research purposes and then once we managed to get equipment to her, which was not an easy thing with COVID and all the restraints of, you know, buying things and sending them to Ecuador, uh, then she started doing interviews herself with her cousin Inti, who was the other project team member. So they would go uh, record people that they knew had something interesting to say and then more or less it would be that they would be transcribing well i would segment they would transcribe then we would talk about uh, things together and when i went there last uh, last fall so october november i was there last year and uh, we did a couple of those interviews as well together and for this Postdoc part of the upper Napo Kichwa work, which was with a slightly different community. Uh, it was yet another setup, uh, basically kind of flash field trips where our main consultant Darwin Grefa, would uh, assemble people who we wanted to interview, and we would prepare some, some food or something you know so we would just spend the whole day de- recording different interviews and then transcription and translation was the same idea
1: yeah did you have to decide on a, uh, like how were you going to transcribe the recordings or is there already a writing system that you could use? How did you navigate that?
2: So there is a writing system uh, called Quichua Unificado, which was, um, changed quite a few times since its inception and in, I think in the 1980s, uh, but we tried not to use it really. So, uh, I followed Simeon Floyd's advice. Simeon is, a, is another linguist working in, in Ecuador, a colleague. And he always said he lets people write however they want. And I pretty much followed the same advice because people don't feel very represented by this unified orthography. Uh, it doesn't reflect some voicing contrast, for example, which are present in the varieties that I've been working on so there is only voiceless stops that you can use but actually in those languages there is a voicing contrast what i ask people to do is to stick to representing kind of the same sound with the same letter but for example uh, when we were all together working in uh, in napo during my phd that was easier because i was just there the whole time so we could discuss things and then with this remote project it was like you know if you want to represent the e sound with a with an e or with an I, that's kind of up to you, but just be consistent with that. And then I'll, I still have to do that, but yeah, I'll include that in the deposit guides for the archive data so that it's kind of clear.
1: Okay. And then, so then, you know, like, okay, this transcriptionist, they use the the I symbol, this transcriptionist likes to use the E symbol, and you make those notes.
2: Yeah. So for the, actually, that's, it's more kind of difference on the language base, because, uh so, Selena was the first transcriber for our data for uh, Chibuleo Kichwa, and then her cousin also joined in. So, he basically just adopted her convention. And then for Upper for Napo Kichwa or the Kichwa spoken in the Amazon, I was lucky enough that everybody kind of mostly agreed on how they want to represent things. And uh, I also, we used a LAN for transcription. So, I made notes as well sometimes when, when something wasn't transparent. And because we revised these transcriptions a lot, you know, that was there was an opportunity to kind of put in special notes when something wasn't clear.
1: Were you impacted? It sounds like you were impacted by COVID because you had to postpone your project and you had to do it remotely. But what about the participants in Ecuador? Did they have to do lockdowns or anything like that?
2: Not really. I mean, uh, Selena Atiselema, whom I mentioned, who was kind of my main coworker on the uh, Chibuleo project, she was studying in Quito and then because of COVID, she actually stayed with her parents in her community. Uh, But they were moving relatively freely within the community. They were kind of cut off from, from the external world, but mostly she interviewed her family that she would visit anyway. And we've um, managed to get enough equipment so that we could set up kind of social distance if necessary. And the NAPO part of the project, that got a little bit more affected because uh, the idea was that the data recording would be coordinated by an anthropologist friend of mine, Saul Uribe, and he would have to get there from Quito. And that wasn't always possible. So he was kind of uh, keeping the equipment. And that's also why we decided to do this kind of condensed interview sessions. Uh, so he would go there for three or four days and, and record people. We did a lot of training online, actually. So that was uh, kind of nice because uh, we reached to quite many people from... He works at a university in Ecuador and also collaborates with Colombia. So we... Uh, were able to organize training sessions for people who then didn't even end up working on the project, but were generally interested in endangered languages or documentation.
1: That's neat. Do you want to say anything more about natural discourse, how you use natural discourse in your in your work?
2: Yeah, maybe I should, actually. So basically, that's kind of another spin-off So using natural discourse, um, which I mentioned before, basically the only reason I can do this is because I'm lucky enough to work with native speakers. And the way we set up interviews is that it's never really me talking to the person that we want to interview. I mean, unless there is like, you know, we are eating a meal and I'm also involved or I just kind of chip in to ask some sort of short question. Uh, But normally it would just be two native speakers talking. And I'm mostly recording or, you know, behind the scenes if there is another person who, who is able to record. Uh, or sometimes I wasn't even there. Um, because for me, what's really interesting is um, how people really use language. So, uh, especially because these markers that, that I set out to analyze, they... It, Supposedly, we already knew what they meant from uh, research on other varieties of uh, of Quechua. And then it turned out that actually in this language they were used completely differently, but you wouldn't pick up on that uh, in settings that were not natural language because they tend to get used in what is called uh, high stake well, I mean I call it that high stake interactions. So basically a conversation that has some real purpose, right? If you are just asking people to describe pictures and it's really all the same to them, you know, if this woman is wearing a blue skirt or a red skirt or whether the dog is standing beho- behind or in front of the tree, they won't be using these uh, epistemic markers or evidential markers, But when it's a conversation negotiating, you know, like, oh, you know, you remember this guy who passed away, or he moved away, or, you know, no, this story didn't go like that, then you have to negotiate knowledge in a more real sense. And then you actually see them all the time.
1: That's interesting. That's what I was going to ask you, if you could explain more about high stakes, but I think you you did it. Can we talk about the language context of uh, Quechua? So for speakers who aren't familiar, like, you you know, you've already said where the language is spoken is spoken in Ecuador, but, um, like, do, is there any idea about, like, numbers of speakers? Like, do young people still speak the language? What are the contexts?
2: Right. So... Uh- I said before that I was working on Quechua specific, and then I started talking about Quechua, right? So that could have been confusing.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe we can explain.
2: <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Uh, so Quechua uh, or Quechuan is the language family. It's the biggest indigenous uh, language family of South America. And uh, even though it's probably also the most well-studied one, we don't really have much of a clue how many speakers are there. Uh there is, um, some stats are saying it's 8 million and some are saying it's 12. So you can see it's quite a big discrepancy. It's spoken um, on the west side of, um, of South America, kind of along the Andes or in the Andes, from uh, uh, north of Argentina to the um, south of Colombia, in Bolivia and Peru and Ecuador as well. Uh, and in Ecuador, Quechuan languages are called Quechua. And officially, you know, I told you already, there was uh, this uh, unified Quechua orthography. So officially, the government is going for the stance that there is really one Quechua uh, in all of Ecuador.
1: And one Quechua, does that include the two varieties that you work with?
2: Yeah, maybe they would, you know, admit that, may- okay, maybe there is two Highland Quechua and Lowland Quechua, because the cultures are so markedly different that yeah, you you can't really kind of lump them together culturally. Uh, also, because as far as we know, the language spread to the Amazon kind of replaced local languages uh, several hundred years ago. So uh, the people in the Amazon who are Quechua speakers today... Um, they uh, their culture is much more kind of Amazonic. It's not like, you know, they kind of adapted the Andean culture to the Amazonian context. But really, uh, we don't know very much about the full extent of variation within Quechuan language family, just because it's not really been well analyzed. Also in linguistics, there was this idea that, you know, when you said Quechua, it was like, okay, yeah, but Quechua is already described because we have described some varieties in Peru. And meanwhile, you have, you know, in Bolivian Quechua, there is some descriptive work coming up now, but really there wasn't very much before. And uh, in Ecuador, also, there are still varieties that we know very little of, and there is quite a lot of Kind of cultural variation. So the the people in Chibuleo in the Andes, in the community where we, where I've been working, uh, they see themselves as culturally different from, say, uh, the Salasaka Kichwa people who live nearby, uh, and the languages are maybe intel- uh, intelligible, uh, but yeah, culturally is different. And I'm. I know it's a you know it's kind of hard to decide what you want to go for. Whether you should unify in the interest of having more speakers lumped together, uh, but uh, from my experience, keeping heritage languages alive is more often about. Uh, the identity and some sort of cultural continuity that you should feel, you know, with uh, people who use this language in the past. And this is often the narrative, oh, you know, it's the language of our ancestors. And the unified Kichwa is not a language of anybody's ancestors. So there are kind of two schools in the region. Some people are very strongly in favor of unified and they—that's that's what is actually getting taught in schools. So uh, even native speakers who want to teach uh, in this uh, bilingual education in Ecuador, which is in place in uh, in areas where indigenous um, people or speakers of a particular indigenous language are, ma- uh, are a majority, in case of Quichua they have to pass a special exam in uh, unified Quichua With a lot of... And it's, you know, lexically, it's kind of pairs of Spanish influence. So you can get to situations which, in my opinion, are a little bit absurd. Like when you, you know, you would have to do your homework as a kid and you go and ask your grandma how to say something. And then she says something like, say, to go straight is dirichu purina, right? From derecho in Spanish, which kind of means straight. And then you can take that back to school. And basically the teacher is going to tell you it's all wrong. So what's what's going to happen the next time you have to ask your grandma something? uh, You're just going to ask her in Spanish. So from my perspective and the people I've been working with, uh, I think it kind of erodes transmission. And the situation is, in terms of vitality, it's really hard to say how many speakers there are of the varieties that I've been working on uh, because uh, the stats in Ecuador are done by language, but as I said, Quechua is not treated as so many languages or, you know, not, not every variety gets treated distinctly. So the way to know the number of speakers is to kind of check how many people said that they speak Quechua and live in a given province. And that doesn't really give you a very granular picture. That's, at least that was the case for the last census data that I worked on for 2010. I think there was a new one more recently, but I would be surprised if, uh, if they improved Um, how they gather data on this because I think it might have been done last year there was a different methodology for the census and uh, yeah I don't know how well it worked
1: I was just going to ask so is there official like official recognition government recognition that Quechua is not just one language or is this not really the case that like as linguists we say like okay Quechua is a language family but there's no recognition for the different varieties within you know the different languages within that family like how because it sounds like for Quechua they're they're just making up some standard variety that no one speaks and saying like this is the standard is that right
2: (laughs) A lot of language activists actually do pick it up. So there is some people who think that uh, Unified Kichwa is the way to go because it gives you much more visibility and like basically there is a strength in numbers. Okay. So that's another, that's also kind of a, a division line. Uh, people insist on using that official variety and, and you know, and they think that this way mm, they will get kind of a bigger arena for their language. Uh but in the Ecuadorian Constitution of 2008, Quichua is actually mentioned as the official language of intercultural relations, if I'm not mistaken. So it's kind of a co-official language, but it's only recognized as one. With Spanish. Yeah, so there is uh, Spanish is the official language, and then you've got Quichua and uh, Shuar, I think, another indigenous language, which are kind of official languages of intercultural relations, that's how they call them. And then you have the other languages which are not mentioned by name. And there is, uh, I think, 13 indigenous languages in Ecuador. Well, 13 languages in Ecuador in total, if I'm not mistaken. And those are kind of supposedly co-official in the territories where the speakers are a majority. But... uh, it's kind of uh, you know. It's it looks very nice when you look at this uh, Fishman scale of you know how officially how the language is officially recognized, uh, but uh, this official recognition doesn't really trickle down to um, everyday use. So there is media, especially radio in Quechua, also produced locally. And it really depends on the region, how much you know, children learn it and, and how widely it's spoken. In my experience, in the Amazon, the further you go from uh, the main road, the more children are going to speak it. So it's really a matter of how accessible the town is. And people, t- I mean, also people kind of profess uh, this uh, attachment to the Quechua identity, but it's not always necessarily connected to speaking the language. And also what kind of further complicates things is that in uh, the Amazon there is a a recent process of nation formation. So some people who speak Amazonian Quechua, as I said before, you know, they've adopted this language and before they spoke something else, we don't really know exactly what that language was. Uh, But they don't call themselves Quechua, they call themselves Quijos. And then uh, they call their variety that they speak Quichos Quechua. So Around uh, the region of, of Tena in the Napa province, you will get some villages which say, oh, we are a kichwa community, and the others would say we are a Kijos community. And its uh, I'm not exactly sure what their legal status is, but they are in the process of being recognized. So it's its all very dynamic. And uh, Darwin Grefa, one of my co-workers on the research project, he is a big activist for... Uh, advocating the emergence of the Quixote nation so with, uh, with a separate heritage and acknowledgement that uh, Quichua is something separate and it's, you know, that there used to be another language before. It's really hard to do research on that as well because there is not so many archaeological sources or, you know, written records. But uh, yeah, he has been going through archives and, you know, working with uh, people who remember past history so there is a lot of work to be done there and it's very very interesting
1: do you want to discuss your experience archiving your data like how has that been you you have a deposit at elar you have one deposit or two deposits at elar
2: i have Three deposits at Elar.
1: <laughs> Three deposits at Elar. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. So one of them only is really kind of uh, completed. It's still missing a guide. I have to. I have to submit a guide. Uh, but basically, I decided the easiest way to do it is uh, to create a deposit, separate deposit for each project, just because the setup were so different. And
1: there are different varieties, right? So mm-hmm. makes sense.
2: Exactly. And different people were involved in the creation and circumstances uh, were different as well. Because basically most of my fieldwork experience is tied to ELDP grants, right? To The endangered Languages Documentation Program. Um, I was obliged to deposit in ELAR. I'm very happy that I was obliged because I think that's, you know, what people should do as well when you collect all this data. It's, it's good to put them somewhere where they can be accessed and they can be professionally curated. Uh, but it is hard work to put it in there in a in a form that can be useful to people. Uh, so I'm still in the process of uh, curating the deposits from my recent uh, uh, project, which finished uh, last December. And I've already submitted all the media, but I'm working on the transcriptions. So I I have to kind of go through them and add English translations. My deposit from the PhD, it's all translated into, well, most, most of it is translated into Spanish, uh, and some of it is glossed morpheme by morpheme, but there is no English translation, unfortunately, and I wanted to add that this time for the new deposits. Uh, so, yeah, if you search ILA, you're going to find two upper Napo qichua deposits uh, where I'm the depositor or co-depositor, and one for
1: Chibuleo-Qichua. Are they open?
2: Yeah, well, some data are and some aren't. So uh, for the first one, uh, for the one from 2013 and 2014, uh, we had a very different arrangement with the community. So I had this kind of meeting where I explained what I was going to do and they've kind of approved of, you know, letting me record there and most of the data was open. And then we had some sessions, for example, where the, there was a midwife who came to... Uh, try and turn somebody's baby in their belly prior to when it was born. It's it's such private data that we decided, okay, this is going to be available upon request. Uh, And for the new ones, uh, because of uh, different uh, process that we have adopted with uh, the ethical requirements and also the remote factor and everything, and uh, it was harder to do it on community basis, so we asked for consent individually from people and they were able to choose who they want to make it open to. So in general, people had no problem, and most of the data in the Tungurahua, uh, Tungurahua deposit, the Chibuléo Kichwa one, uh, they're open to the public, but some sessions are, you know, only available upon request, or I think one or two are only open to, like, family um, it's also hard to kind of put across, you know, what the language archive is and how, you, how it's going to be used to, and, you know, and how it's going to be accessed. So I, I want to keep working on those deposits to kind of be adding more information and, you know, making it more transparent. Uh, but in each case, uh, everybody got a copy of their interview as well. And people seem to be kind of content with that because for their purposes of passing it on to family or friends or, you know, having it as a keepsake, that's kind of enough. And uh, unfortunately, some of the oldest people I've managed to interview, uh, they've passed away since. And actually, I think the kind of most touching thing that I've heard from a family of one of them is that always on the birthday of this lady who passed away, they they watch the interview that we've recorded with her.
1: Oh, wow. That's really nice.
2: So, yeah, I, I hope that, you know, archives kind of stick around and make themselves more and more open. Like maybe there was be there's going to be a Spanish interface one day to, to make it properly available. Because uh, I try to make it as transparent as possible. But as you know yourself, it's uh, the demands of the infrastructure of pu- putting the data in a certain order. They may be, they're not even transparent to linguists sometimes. So it's hard to make them very accessible to the community. But the data is there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, there's so many layers, like you have to have internet to start with, and then you have to have internet literacy. And then if the interface of ELAR is only in English, you have to have enough English to be able to navigate the archive to find your deposit. Uh, And, you know, like you say, like, now we have to find like, which files are my, my grandfather that I want to listen to. It's... It's not as transparent or it's not as easy as you would think.
2: Exactly. And then you also try to make it accessible to other researchers. But really, I mean, it takes a lot of time to just even, you know, transcribe and translate. And then... If it's like twenty odd hours of data, doing morphing, by morphing, glossing of all of that, that's a completely different story. Like I almost feel there should be a separate grant just for that, you know, for <laughs> glossing all the data that you've recorded, because I can use it all right, and people can use it for maybe like anthropological research or you know just if they're generally interested in the culture. Uh, but using it for linguistic uh, analysis, it's a whole different story. Unfortunately.
1: Yeah, that's that's so true. Ugh, transcribing is is like linguistic hell to me it's just it takes so long and it's so painful and i i and you have to make so many decisions. I don't think people realize like how many choices you have to make when you are doing a transcription for a language that doesn't have a standard writing system that everybody uses. Like, oh, should we do IPA? Do, you know, what do people want? What can people read? Oh, it's too much.
2: Exactly. And then you have to remember the choices that you've made as
1: well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, it's true. Oh, okay. Um, on that note, thank you, Carolina, so much for coming on to Field Notes. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work?
2: Um, I am on both academia, uh,
1: I will link your academia profile.
2: Thank you. And on ResearchGate as well, I think that's the most uh, kind of uh, stable repository of uh, the things that I have done uh, because I've been changing institutions quite a lot. Uh, when you asked me to uh, come to Field Notes, I've also finally, after a few years of thinking, have been motivated to purchase my own domain, which is going to be info. So the domain is purchased, but there is nothing there yet. But I hope there will be shortly. And I am also on Twitter, uh, and I'm trying to be more active there. But uh, or should I say X? Right, I'm on X, uh, but right. I'm not very. <laughs> I'm not very active there yet, but I'm trying to be. And then, of course, uh, there are no deposits on ELAR as well.
1: Great. And I'll, I will link everything in the show notes so that people can find you.
2: Perfect. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic
2: fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui-Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Claire Gon is our editor and Luca Dinu is our transcriptionist. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by EVil Designs. If you have fieldwork experience to share, email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Notes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow and leave a review on your favorite
0: podcast platform. Also, consider becoming our patron on Patreon to help keep our content ad free. Thanks for listening.